Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is John Swab. He is the writer, director, and producer of movies such as Ida Red and Body Brokers. His latest film, Candyland, opens in select theaters and on demand on January 6th. Welcome to the show. We are so excited you're here. Thank you both for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, Mary Beth has been talking about your movie for ages and so, so <laughs> excited to be able to like finally watch it this month and and join the chorus of people that are infatuated with it. So can you kind of, let's just dive in. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Candyland um, and what it is about? Yeah, so it's a, uh, it's a movie about a... a Cult, young cult member who joins a gang of truck truck stop hookers and uh, uh, uh you know people start disappearing people start dying and you don't know what's going on and you're just trying to figure it out it's it's a comedy that's what it is it's a comedy uh wrapped up in a horror uh and a horror's disguise so yeah it's very funny i was laughing the entire time very much <laughs> good but so I would love to hear kind of where the idea for Candyland kind of came from and how you got involved in the project and all that good stuff. Yeah, I mean, the movie was pretty much just born out of resentment for uh, the current state of movies. And, uh, oh. you know, specifically, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's there's giant movies and then there's there's indie movies and there's kind of no in between. And uh, there's certainly, you know, I feel like a lot of the films nowadays have been... Um, you know, whitewashed or, or, uh, very safe. And, you know, uh, Jeremy and I got to talking and I had this idea about a, uh, a horror movie centered around a uh, lot lizards at a truck stop. And, uh, 
I kind of holed up over a week, uh, two Christmases ago and wrote the script. And um, yeah, my wife says it's, uh, it's, it's the most of me in any script that I've ever written. So whatever that, you know, take that for, you know, however you will, Um, (laughs) you know, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, you know, you don't, I mean, ironically, you know, this movie came out or is coming out uh, films like X and Pearl have come out and um, you know, there's kind of this natural push, especially in the horror genre for, you know, strong sexuality and violence and kind of pushing the the boundary a little bit. Um, and it's kind of cool that, you know, independently, you know, we made this and uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Ty West and that he was making something, you know, in the same, under the same umbrella at the same time. So I'm happy to see other movies like it out there. Um, but yeah, it was really born out of resentment um, for, you know, the movies that we were seeing instead of the movies I wanted to see. So. Well, because this this movie feels like a grindhouse movie, and I feel like you take that grindhouse aesthetic, but you put it in the 2022 context so well, because I know that, you know, exploita- exploitation and grindhouse movies are meant to push buttons, but how does that kind of translate into 2022? And I think what you accomplish with Candyland is like a shining example of that, like even more so than what we see with X, because again, like, I think X could have been even more crazy but that's neither here nor there um but like and and trying to balance like these humanity and love and intimacy with these characters with these more exploitative violent aspects what was that like kind of trying to strike that balance i think you do it really well with Candyland. yeah i mean uh, i just fucking went for it really you know it was like yeah. uh, you know it's like oh yeah <laughs> uh, you know it's like i've seen versions I, I haven't seen a few things that we did in this movie ever in a movie before um but i've seen you know like the sharon stone shot uh you know we kind of you know made that look like a mickey mouse thing in this <laughs> and uh you know little things like that i was like oh i've seen this done before but it was done kind of in this safe way um let's kind of just blow the doors off of it but also like it was very important to be tasteful you know and and make sure that this wasn't like you know, gratuitous in any way, which is amazing to me because, you know, when we did it and you're doing it and you're in the room and people are doing these things, you're like, this is fucking crazy. And then, uh, and then you kind of edit it all together and you're alone and it's just me and Jeremy in a dark room. And we're like, is this fucking nuts? Like, or or like, what are people going to think? And then you start showing it to people and then seeing it with an audience of like 700 in Switzerland and then a few hundred in LA a few weeks ago you realize like, no, we didn't, we we really straddled the line. I feel like in, uh, you know, keeping these people as like these sympathetic human characters while also fully going there and, uh, you know, not pulling any punches, which I'm, I'm very proud about of because, you know, I haven't seen a movie like this, you know, with the tone and kind of balancing genre, you know, I, 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 it's kind of thing like you just I'm I'm really proud of because we just went for it and I guess it fucking worked you know what I mean so it's yeah. it's cool yeah. yeah well and I I think that a lot of the the sexuality and the maybe the overtopness is centered in characters and in their humanity versus some old grindhouse movies that might just be lasciviously looking at at naked bodies this one feels like it's it's grounded more in the characters and I think I think that's what you were kind of saying too Mary Beth where it feels like a grindhouse but also with 
some 2022 sensibilities to it. And I personally was happy that there was some queer representation in it uh, because we don't get to see that a whole lot. Like the, the, the um, character played by Owen fantastically, by the way, I love that, that guy. Um, so, th- I mean, that, I, I love that. I'm glad that, that you did include um, a gay character or a queer character. Multiple though, because yeah. Yeah, also multiple. the two women, mm-hmm. the women yep. are, and I love that too, because like they're in a queer relationship, they still have sex with men, but it's different than their relationship. And they're, mm-hmm. again, like those nuances to sex and sexuality are like, we don't see that ever in horror or in in cinema. And we got that multiple times here too. So that's also like really exciting to see. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, uh, first of all, it's just what it's the world we live in. So why, you know, why wouldn't you um, yeah. represent that, you know, but also like, I don't know. I mean, it's just I, it it felt natural. I know these people. I know people that, you know, are uh, sex workers and and all that. And most of them are queer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, or to some extent, a lot of them are, you know, so it's or they, you know, or just down for whatever so i thought that was important uh to be honest and uh you know stay true to that so but it feels like wild sometimes that i don't think people realize how easy it is to be honest or they act like it's so hard to be honest with these kinds of topics if that makes sense i just i don't know it feels sometimes people should overdo it make it overwrought to the point where it becomes parody and it feels more like parody than actually anything honest with the world so it is wild to think about how that people struggle with that honesty or on special topics like this. But um I think most Terry... people just want to it. So, you know, um, you know, so uh <laughs> yeah, so I agree, you know. Yeah. But Terry mentioned Owen and I we'd love to hear about the cast because you have mm-hmm. an incredible cast here. Like we, we were talking to um before I started recording about especially Owen Campbell and Olivia Lucardi in this film, but the, the whole cast is so incredible. So wanted to hear more about what it was like finding these cat like these cast members and creating this this family of sorts yeah i mean um you know this was not a a a big budgeted movie at all um you know it was very much a labor of love and for the most part self-financed by you know people who may or may not be on this call um (laughs) you know but this movie wouldn't have happened without our relationships and our friends i mean um you know owen as Jeremy mentioned we worked with before uh my wife plays Sadie um so you know and she's friends with Eden um so you know there was a relationship there I'd been friends with Eden for a while before uh Jeremy knew Guinevere um we knew Brad Carter uh we had been introduced to Billy Baldwin and we were fans and then Olivia I just had admired for a while because she's always popping up in these things and is such a strong character actor and you know we sought her out and she decided to come along. So there was a relationship pretty much with everybody in the cast. Um, so it wasn't really a big thing uh, for them to come out. You know, it wasn't like we had to go track them down, you know, but the movie wouldn't have worked without those relationships either, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Mary Beth mentioned Olivia and this, she's had, she's having quite well, she and both Owen too, as well for that matter. But Olivia's having quite a year with coming off of a soft and quiet, and then to go into this movie as well, um, how did how did she get attached to the cast? Because she's um she's a firebird, she's fierce. Yeah, she um I think she was probably the last person we cast in the film. You know, it was the, the character of Remy was uh was a tough one. To, I mean, we were asking a lot of yeah. of who was going to play that role, 
And like I said, everybody else in the cast was a friend of mine. So mm-hmm. or a friend of Jeremy. So it was a phone call. It was like, hey, you know, this is what's going to happen. And, you know, we're going to shoot it like this. And this is how we're going to do it. And they're like, yeah, fuck it. We're friends. Like, I'm down. And, you know, uh, my wife was like, sure, I'll get naked and ride a trucker and, you know, and whatever. We'll do it. And but with, you know, we, we had a few people that were a little scared off by what we really wanted them to do. And I mean, Olivia, I, we got on the, I got on the zoom with her and she was just like, this this is fucking dope. I'm down. Let's do it. Like, uh, let's go all the way. Um, when do we start? And I was like, all right, great. So, well, you know, you're in. Um, so it was via her agent who Jeremy has a relationship with. And, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful that it, it, uh, it worked out because she really delivered for us. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. Good Lord. Um, but kind of moving into your horror history, I would love to have to get back and hear how you got introduced to the horror genre. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think of how I got introduced to it. I, uh, this, I mean, may sound like, like a douchebag, but I didn't really ever, I wasn't really ever scared of films. Films never really scared me as a kid. So I kind of, I kind of wrote off the horror genre as a kid and and was more into like crime films and uh, action movies. And, you know, that was kind of more my lane. And then once I started making movies, I really started appreciating the freedom that was allowed in the horror genre. And so that's kind of when I got into horror movies. And since then I've, I've, you know, I wouldn't say I'm an aficionado by any stretch, but I've really tried to go back and educate myself on the history of horror, and uh, and I'm glad I did. And 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 like I've I've said before, and um and Jeremy knows this, but like I've never felt more free making a movie as when I made Candyland because of you know like the horror genre lets you do things that you can't get away with in another genre. You know, you get penalized for it, but there's a freedom and. Uh, you're rewarded for that. So I guess in short, in, in short, I haven't been a horror fan for very long, probably just about 10 years now. Okay. Um, so I got into it late. Do you remember like the movie as an adult that kind of started shifting maybe your perspective of it? Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of what shifted my perspective. I mean, there's a lot. There's, I mean, the, the, all of the classics kind of shifted my perspective. I mean, okay. And, and I don't know. I, I guess I kind of look at real life scenarios as horror. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I mean, I've had yeah. a, an extensive uh, background of 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 uh, troubling circumstance and experience that were, were way more horrifying than a you know a a monster or a goblin or a serial, you know, with all those kind of things. So yeah, I don't know. like for instance, the movie I picked for, for the film we're going to talk about, like, and there, it was between that and Larry Clark's bully. Cause those were the two most scary films I saw when I was a kid, just because wow. they were so real to me. And I had never mm-hmm. seen films depicted like that in that raw way. So I don't know. I considered horror something different growing up, I guess, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, for sure. I kind of saw horror as funny. Like, and and then as I grew up, I got to see the freedom that you have when making a horror movie. And I started watching it just differently, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So have you all, so it sounds like you've always been like a big movie person though. Have you always wanted to make movies or be involved somehow in the world of movies? Uh, yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Did you have like a family member that was really into movies or did you kind of discover them on your own? No, I had, I mean, so I'm from Oklahoma. Um, and up until maybe a week ago, it was a very, uh, closed off and, uh, kind of <laughs> repressed, oppressed place, you know, very religious, uh, it still is very, very religious, but it's slowly kind of opening up and, and, you know, people are moving here and whatever. I just moved back actually. But there was no, I had no idea how movies were made. I had no idea where they come from. I thought they were all filmed in one day, you know, in in order, and it just happened that way. Um, But I had an uncle who uh, lived in Hollywood and was a film producer or had produced one film. He worked for Jersey Films for a little while for Danny DeVito's company is like, I don't know what capacity. Uh, he had said he found the script for Reality Bites. I don't know if that was true or not. I'd like to think it is. <laughs> uh, but but, uh, but uh, anyway, I mean, when I was a kid, he would come back to town occasionally. And I was, I have a lot of cousins, but I, he really liked me. And he would take me to see movies and he would explain movies to me. And he would tell me stories about films and about Hollywood. And he only came back on the holidays so and I really cherished that time with him so that was kind of my attachment to film and and to wanting to make movies I'd go visit him and uh and see California and all that so I kind of fell in love with the idea then and knew I always wanted to do it but never knew how mm-hmm. um, so you know and and one of the first movies he ever showed me was Reservoir Dogs so that was kind of like he had gone to to uh the Sundance premiere and when it came out on VHS, you know, I, I was about six when he showed it to me. So I was this was a few years after it came out. That was kind of how I was introduced to to movies and not only like, you know, just not theater popcorn movies, but like independent movies, too. So, well, let's start. Let's start talking about Reservoir Dogs since we've already kind of gotten into your Sorry story behind it, which is uh, no, yeah. not at all. It made a lot of sure. sense. But so we, we're talking about. Reservoir Dogs. So I, I'll read a super brief synopsis of the film for anyone who isn't familiar. And if you aren't, please go check it out. In Reservoir Dogs, when a simple jewelry heist goes horribly wrong, the surviving criminals begin to suspect that one of them is a police informant. So you kind of um, already started this a little bit, but can you um, can you tell us why this is your Scarred for Life pick? Kind of tell us the story. How did you get introduced to this? Um, it sounds like uh, your uncle saw it at Sundance and they brought it to you, but can you kind of dive into that whole story and why this is your scarred for life choice? Yeah. So um, like I, like I had mentioned, my uncle was uh, in the film business. Uh, he's since he passed away about 12 years ago or 13 years ago, but he was, he was involved. He had produced a few movies and, uh, and was an avid movie buff. And so you know, my earliest movie experiences or most memorable ones were going to the movies with him whenever he was mm-hmm. back in town. Um, you know, when I was about six or seven, we were at his house and he played, you know, re- he, we watched Reservoir Dogs. And uh, and he told me the story about uh, going to see it at Sundance and taking a piss next to William Defoe in the bathroom before and, uh, you know, just all these like this folklore and stuff that you would hear about. And I thought it was the coolest thing. But when we watched the movie and, you know, Tim Roth is in the back of the car and he's bloody and Harvey Keitel's, you know, yelling, you're going to be OK. And my uncle is just laughing hysterically the whole time at the movie. It was it was very jarring for me because I had never seen a movie 
that was that felt real you know that felt like i you know at the time i was six maybe seven and i had only been exposed to fucking disney movies and big and you know things like that that are you know your typical happy hollywood fair um and then you know all of a sudden there's guys sitting in this room and they're talking about dick 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 and they're just going around and kind of this banter i'd never seen anything little shot like that let alone people talking like that you know coming from my tv so it was eye-opening and like arresting in a way that it felt like these were you know real criminals these weren't this wasn't a movie i didn't know if it was going to end i didn't know how it would end i didn't know anything so it was it it was it scarred me i guess ultimately in a good way because it made me want to make movies but i just remember feeling ill after i saw it and while i was watching it because i was so i felt unsafe in a way yeah uh and you know late now i watched the movie and i laugh like my uncle laughed and he had seen it a few times so having this experience while you know some old guys drinking beer next to you and just laughing at all these like horrible things like somebody getting their ear cut off or all that it just was this super conflicted experience for me that I'll never forget. And, uh, you know, so that's, I guess, why uh, it scarred me for life, if that makes sense. No, it ab- absolutely does. I think one of the things we've we've sort of seen throughout the history of this show is that a lot of times that Scarred for Life pick is that first time where maybe it's something outside of what you're typically used to seeing, or it's something that, like you said, makes you feel unsafe, or it's that kind of first moment where like, oh, this this could actually be real, or this is affecting me in a way that other cinema or other uh media has not at that point is this was did you see this before bully because i know you also said that bully was also a one that was on your list yeah i saw this before but this i mean i think bully came out a few years after i'd even seen this but i saw bully larry is from where i'm from or tulsa and so so there's a uh strong constituency of of fans here and so i remember seeing that when it came out and that really fucked me up you know uh because that's a pretty fucked up film larry clark's fucked up (laughs) yeah yeah, he is Uh, i say that with love i mean that with love (laughs) so you one of the things that you you kind of brought up there's like a little when you were talking little things just shot at me but the first one is the dialogue because that was something that i when i saw this movie for the first time i was I probably was in my late teens or early twenties. I know I saw it after Pulp Fiction, um, and I remember thinking, "Oh, I need to, I need to watch this this movie" because everyone was talking about this being his like you know first film and kind of going out the door, uh, t- testing things that he would eventually do a little bit more of in Pulp Fiction. And so I remember watching it, but I have I'll be honest, I had not seen it since that time. And the thing that jumped out at me now, we watching it for the podcast, was um, the way the dialogue unfolds. And I did find an mm-hmm. interview with him where he where quentin was talking about how most movie characters talked about the plot too much he said quote most of us don't talk about the plot in our lives we talk around things we talk about bullshit and so when we have this opening sequence at the at the diner and they're just like talking about madonna's song lyrics and whether that's about getting fucked by someone with a big penis or not like this is all this is all stuff that i was not expecting to be to see in a movie about like cops and robbers type situation, you know? Well, and there's also a really interesting quote uh, kind of related to that from Tarantino about like not wanting to show the big 
thing, the big mm-hmm. like central thing, the heist, because well, one, because of budgetary reasons, but two, um, wanted to keep it ambiguous and have the characters describing it. And like you said, the film is often about other, it's about other things. So it, it's all about talking around it, not showing it and not showing that big climax, like the climactic you would think in a regular kind of formatted movie, the climax of the movie is not even ever shown. And I, I saw this in high school because I went through a big Tarantino phase. Like I thought it was so cool in high school, loving Quentin Tarantino. Like I'd seen Pulp Fiction so many times and I loved, I loved Pulp Fiction. I loved Inglourious Bastards. I loved all of his stuff. And so I watched this movie and I didn't really, I, I didn't know anything about like, it was his first movie. It was kind of like the introduction of all of these things. And I definitely didn't appreciate it. And it wasn't uh, to me it wasn't as exciting as Pulp Fiction and because I was a high school student like a high schooler and wasn't necessarily the most like media informed child I was like this is kind of boring they're just talking a lot um and they talk a lot in Pulp Fiction too so like I don't understand where my brain was but whatever <laughs> but I like you're saying Terry they like these monologues and these just these conversations that seem to be about nothing are actually so fascinating like I love Mr. Pink Steve Buscemi and a very cute young Steve Buscemi talking about tipping and not the conversation about tipping yes but I also love that because I think the art the movie is such a that discussion I think is such an interesting foreshadowing such a foil to like valuing yourself as a person and like what it means to be a person and earning money and to get value on yourself as a person and he is defining like waitresses and their value but then how is he defining his I got really into it this time and I was really into like it's like very deep into like the thoughts of, but it's like really love how Tarantino uses language um well that sounds terrible not all the time but how he uses dialogue <laughs> specifically in his movies to tell you about like all of these characters in such seemingly like mundane ways. I've watched Tarantino movie in a long time. So I was excited. <laughs> I feel like Tarantino uh, has become like uh like Nirvana in a way where it's like all the t-shirts have kind of made them uncool. But, uh, but then like after a while, you know, you listen to Nevermind or something like that. And you're like, Holy shit. Like this is really, this is special. And I, I, you know, I wasn't, old enough at the time to maybe appreciate it when it happened like culturally how those things happened i remember both instances obviously seeing this movie and when nevermind came out and it felt like a bomb went off but i wasn't old enough to have a conversation with other people that that were also experienced the same thing so i don't know i i think you know i in a way like i looked at your list and i was like oh wow they've done a bunch of like cool horror movies and stuff like that and a lot of movies that maybe i would have picked if it, if they weren't there um but you know in thinking more about it i thought this was a more interesting pick for me even though you know people think it's uncool maybe to 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 discuss tarantino because it's like discussing apple or something at this point mm. like it's like uh you know but it doesn't i can't i mean the guys uh, having made you know seven movies at this point and then going and watching a movie like this um, or Pulp Fiction or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or like Inglorious Bastards, it's amazing the command that guy has like of of what he's doing. It's 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 unbelievable. And uh, and I've read his scripts, too. Um, and I usually try and read them before I see the movie. And oh. when you do that and it's like, fuck, man, like, how do you how do you you know how do, it's so inspiring that somebody is that 
ahead of you know what they're doing um so i don't know i i part of me at, at first kind of felt like a, an asshole for picking this movie and then i was like no fuck that like this is a great fucking movie and like he's a genius and one of the greatest filmmakers to ever live but i think uh you know i think that's gotten lost because you know every jock has a reservoir dogs poster in their uh in their you know their frat house or whatever but uh yeah it's not his fault you know what i mean so, right exactly yeah. and i think like tarantino has a reputation and i have like i you know i have my issues with tarantino and like in some of the things he does but i also like he also shaped me as like a movie watcher as in high school like right. i think and and watching Reservoir Dogs now and like realizing like the impacts he has had on movie making. And I think, especially because on Twitter, you can be really, it's like hard to have a good discussion. And I think a lot of discussions yeah. about these things happen, um, putting it very lightly. But I think like it is t- Tarantino has problems, but also he shaped what I think like modern cinema looks like today. And I think watching, rewatching Reservoir Dogs kind of solidified in that my in my head a lot more than it had in the past so I think I also have seen I've watched a lot of Tarantino more recently ish with like a mm, Tarantino is a bad guy kind of lens which I don't think is always the most productive lens and I know this about myself that sometimes like I can have that lens when I'm watching something but I think while that is on one hand valid I think trying to kind of remove that lens a little bit from myself has opened me up for more appreciation for Tarantino, if that makes any sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't have social media and and so I'm like yeah. I haven't had it for Good. almost a decade. So like I'm completely like in my own world uh as to like most controversy or anything somebody does. I'm like, you, you know, know what? I'll... Good. Stay away yeah. from it. <laughs> I can't exist on there. But uh <laughs> you know, I find out people are canceled like four or five years later. So, I mean, uh, I'm I'm behind the eight ball on a lot, a lot of conversations in terms of what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of like Tarantino, it's just like a lot of like his use of like, like when I, I like, you know, slurs and race stuff slurs, in yeah. a lot of his movies, a lot of discussion is around that. And his thing with feet, too, I think is always a fascinating. But anyway, um, <laughs> that doesn't happen here. So it's fine. <laughs> Well, John, you were talking about, you know, Nirvana and Tarantino sort of, you know, they're cool, then they're not cool. And then maybe that you start to realize that they are cool. And I did find this article with The New Yorker and it, it really like it made me think because there's a quote from Tarantino in it where he says, I became an adjective sooner than I thought I was going to. And there's a little bit of arrogance to that, of course. But like there's also the it's hitting the, the nail on the head where calling something Tarantino or Tarantino like, or using that as a descriptor for everything. It, it's, it's true. And so I think that sometimes when you have made such a big cultural shift in whatever media you're doing, and then people will sometimes take that to the next extreme. And then it becomes like, you're seeing all of the, the people try to, all the filmmakers are trying to like ape that style or producers are aping that style because you know, it made, it made such a big wave. And then it sort of becomes this sort of like felt self-feeding machine of, that turns into parody almost. But I did think that quote was really interesting because that was made in 1994. And that's like early in his career. That's like right after this movie, pretty much that uh, this came out, what, 92, I think. And so, yeah, when was Pulp Fiction? 94, 94. So it would have been. Yeah. So okay. like right there, right there, you are are becoming 
<laughs> an adjective to describe how how movies are. And I think that's I, I think sometimes we don't appreciate that, that he came, came out swinging with these two with these two films in particular that kind of shifted the way we looked at cinema in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, I think uh, well, I mean, you, you know, eventually you become demonized if you keep uh, you keep hitting things out of the park. And I, I certainly think there was such an interesting the early 90s for film was kind of like it was like the new new. Hollywood, you know, it was like Soderbergh with Sex Lies and Videotape, uh, Kids, um, oh. Reservoir Dogs. Um, there was kind of that whole like class of people, uh, Mariachi, El Mariachi. Like there was kind mm-hmm. of this whole new group of filmmakers that were similar to like you know the the movie brats, you know, and um, and he was certainly kind of at the head of the table. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, there were a ton of movies that came out after Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, you know, Hollywood just trying to imitate whatever was working, like Way of the Gun or, uh, you know, even resurrecting like uh, like Elmore Leonard's Out of Sight, like uh, things to do in Denver when you're dead. I mean, yeah, and they none of them were that great, you know, or stand up, you know, when you rewatch them. So Yeah, I mean, so there's I think, some movies that definitely, I think, uh, do it justice. For instance, I one of my favorite movies is Go from 1999. And that movie... I, I don't know if you've if either of you've ever seen it, but it, it apes the structure of like uh, um, Pulp Fiction in particular, where it's everything's told out of order and you it's following different characters and they, their lives crisscross over one one night on Christmas Eve. And I don't know, that's like one of the first times that I saw a movie that I was like, oh, I see what you're doing and you're adding something new to the table versus trying to just replicate what made, you know, Tarantino's early movies great. But right. I, I do think it's interesting, though, because I, in the same New Yorker article, there's another quote where he's talking about bringing the story. He, he's telling the story of going to Harvey Keitel's house to discuss res, the Reservoir Dogs script. And in quotes, how did you come up? To, how did you come to write the script? Did you live in a tough guy neighborhood growing up? Was anybody in your family connected with tough guys? Keitel asked. And Tarantino said, no. Well, how the hell did you come up with this? And Keitel said, Keitel asked, and Tarantino said, I watch movies. And I think that that's like such an interesting thing because a lot of times the, you know, the screenwriting dictum, write what you know. And, you know, maybe he doesn't know tough guys or, you know, real criminals, but he watches movies about him. And so he's taking that structure of what um, a crime movie is and he deconstructs it in such a, I think it's a brilliant way of of de- deconstructing the sort of tough guy mythology that is happening uh, in cinema, particularly with like coming out of the gangster movies and coming out of like, you know, um, The Godfather and Scarface and all that kind of stuff that's happening. And we have this that is taking the the cops and robbers story and turning it on its head in a way that only someone that understands cinema, I think, can do. He's such yeah, a nerd. I, think, I, think it's cool. <laughs> I love I think that. It's cool because like he will do things like, for instance, Reservoir Dogs. I didn't know this until maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago or something much longer after I'd seen the movie, you know, 50 times, uh, it was, you know, it's very close to the plot of a movie called called City on Fire, which is a, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, an Asian film Mm. um, about a jewel heist that goes wrong. And there's Mm. an informant in the group. I mean, it's, it's very similar. And, you know, he does a lot of that stuff in his films where he unapologetically will reference movies directly, but Mm -hmm. only, a real nerd is gonna see the reference you know uh, i mean for instance like in kill bill i think uh the score 
that he uses um is 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 ripped from like an old 70s spaghetti western movie you know it directly is, yeah. from it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. same you know uh, i forget the director's name i've seen the the, the movie um but I don't know. I appreciate that he does that stuff, but for a novice or somebody who doesn't know, they just think it's the coolest thing they've ever seen when all he's doing is going back to what worked in the past and making it his own. So I, I, I appreciate that. I think it's, uh, you know, it's very smart, smart business model. So I also want to talk about the performances in this movie because I love the, the again, this is, this is Tarantino's first movie. So this is kind of him establishing the people, like some of the people he'll see, he'll work with over and over again. But I especially want to talk about Tim Roth, who is Mr. Orange, mm. who is our, our, our under our informant undercover man. And I, I've had a crush on um, Tim Roth since I was in high school. And I, this movie is part of the reason, even though I didn't like the movie didn't resonate me with as much he did, um, especially his performance one, I thought he was cute, and I still think he's cute. But two, the way he's able to like to portray pain and the way he portrays someone in pain, but also someone who is terrified and someone who is able to laugh at some points. And I think there's a power to the way he plays that that feels really real and was something that I hadn't ever seen portrayed so realistically on film like I it was it like kind of going back to what you said John it felt dirty like I shouldn't be watching it like this is actually somebody dying like this is something that I shouldn't be watching and I shouldn't like this is private and I think Tim Roth does it so fucking well in this movie um and especially his relationship with Harvey Keitel as well that there's an intimacy I think with these male characters it's really interesting in these performances yeah I agree I mean that, that for me I mean is the was the most uh even more than the the ear getting cut off, but the takeaway scene for me or the one that really, I guess, to to use a pun, scarred me for life was that scene in the back of the car when he's, you know, yes. riding in pain. I mean, it's uh it it really fucked me up, you know. And in his performance, he in the movie, he he's my fit he and Chris Penn are my favorite. I love Chris Penn. Uh and you know, sad that he died so young. But I just anytime I saw him pop up in a movie, I always appreciated it and I liked but Tim Roth, I think, uh, is my, my favorite favorite performance in the film. You know what I love about that sequence, though, too, is so we have this opening establishing with like in the diner, they're all talking about Madonna and they're talking about tipping, like it's just a, a natural conversation that's that's playing out, and then we have the sort of like slow motion cool guy walk as they're all dressed up in suits and they're walking out of the diner and it's like we're introducing them with their the actors' names across the screen and it's all slow motion and tough guy attitude. And it cuts from that to the back of the car with, with, with Tim Roth in the backseat bleeding. And it's like, it's like such a a juxtaposition of like the coolest. And then uh, this is what happens. And so it's like, all of a sudden we're, we're, we're away from that sort of mythology of these big, big ass, like big, strong men and now he is like whimpering like a kid he thinks he's going to die he's just bleeding he's like i'm oh fuck i'm gonna die and we have harvey keitel reaching back and like trying to comfort him as much as he possibly can and it's like such a a whiplash of like tone that i think is just it immediately pulled me in on this rewatch and i was like oh i love what what tarantino is doing here with this this the sequence mm-hmm. yeah but I also think this um this this rewatch solidified how much I like Tarantino writing dialogue between fr- like male friends because I think 
there is an interesting, like, like I mentioned, intimacy between these characters that I think kind of tears down the wall a little bit of like the toxic masculinity kind of vibes you would see in movies like this with like mob movies, crime movies, things like that. But here we have these like, again, Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth, like holding, Harvey Keitel holding his hand, holding him saying, you're not going to die. You're going to be fine. Tim Roth saying, will you hold me? Like there are these discussions that you know you might not think it are like this typical quote-unquote intimate conversations but the way that Tarantino writes them makes them feel intimate and I feel that way about Pulp Fiction as well especially you know when Vincent Vega and Samuel Jackson's character's name I just totally fucking forgot are driving in the car talking about burgers it's just like two guys having a conversation about what feels like nothing and I know I mentioned this before but there's an intimacy to that that you don't having access to those kinds of conversations feels intimate being able to see people just talking about nothing feels so intimate and intimate is never a word I would have used for Tarantino before I think until today but there is something about that especially in these like earlier movies I don't think that necessarily kind of I think he gets away a little bit from that in later films but especially in these two that are super super dialogue heavy I think there is an intimacy there that I hadn't really ever prescribed to Tarantino's work before. Yeah, I think there's a, you know, a healthy amount of just like uh, fuck you in these movies, you know, where I think he really comes out swinging. And uh, I think, you know, like you're saying, maybe in a way we're ahead of their time to the point where you didn't even really realize that they were, you know, yeah. but yeah. how bold they were. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, it, I agree. I think the hold me line, uh, you know, I never really thought about that like that either, but I think it's, it's really, really great. So, well, the thing that, again, I, this is probably the first time I've seen this movie since I originally saw it in like teens, early twenties. But the thing that really jumped out of me this time is uh, a, a queer subtext between Mr. Orange and Mr. White, um, because there is like, there's a physical intimacy there too, where like, uh, Harvey Keitel's character, and I always forget which one is which. Harvey Mr. White is constantly touching him. Like there is, there's a physical intimacy there where even when at the very end of the movie, when it's it's becoming apparent that, you know, he might be uh the informant and uh Joe comes in and is like, this is the rat, and it causes a standoff. There is there's this the sequence where he's like literally you can see his hands like smoothing his hair, rubbing on his body, comforting, rubbing his shoulders. Like there is there's a physical intimacy that you do not see in a lot of uh, hyper masculine movies, I would say, in terms of like trying to present this sort of like very heterosexual, straight, um, very aggro type characters, which all these characters seem to be. But there's that tender moment where it's more than just. It's more than just him being betrayed because he, you know, he's thinking that this is an actual cop that has betrayed them all. There's more. There's something else there that is going on behind the scenes as to why he would all of a sudden break down crying and be like, I can't believe this is happening. And it's a betrayal more more so of being, um, you know, having the 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 heist go wrong than it is about almost like a romantic betrayal in a way. And I, I just think that that that's something that jumped out of me this time that I, I never had would have ever in a million years thought of in this movie uh, when I had seen it before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, it's it, that relationship is very intimate and I, I didn't even, I honestly, I, I, I almost, I was thinking about it after I picked the movie the other day and I was like, should I rewatch it 
to refresh myself and I thought it'd be more interesting to to not rewatch it and draw from just my memories of the movie. Um but now I'm just kind of replaying that sequence in my head and it is a very interesting sequence, you know, and very intimate, you know. Well, and there's so. like uh, what I love also I won't, I want, really want to talk about the flashbacks in particular, but there's one that that I think fits in with this perfectly. There's the moment where we see like Mr. Orange and Mr. White crash into Quentin Tarantino's character again. I'm really bad with all these different colored color names. I will uh, never be able to keep them straight. Crashes into Mr. Brown's car. Mr. Brown is dying, and it's just the two of them. Um, and the cops are coming around the corner, and Harvey Keitel's character just opens fires on the cops. And there's this moment where Tim Roth's Mr. Orange is staring, and he could do something. It's just the two of them. It's just the two of them at this point because everyone else is dead. And he could shoot Mr. Orange or Mr. White in the back. He could just kill him right then and there and put an end to this. But he doesn't. Instead, right. he elopes with him in a way. And so it's just like there's there's that moment where I'm like, there is something there that is more than just a friendship. It's important to me. I thought I found it very important that they know each other's names and it comes up in like a casual conversation. It wasn't a slip up like there is that kind of. I mean, we keep saying this word, but intimacy there that that I think is is more so than just two robbers on a heist together. And I, I, I so I appreciated that a whole lot more on this watch of going, wow, there is a very interesting deconstruction of sort of male friendships and potentially um, sexual relationships going on in this this scene about guys chopping off people's ears. And I I don't know. It made me appreciate it so much more. That's really interesting. I'm going to I'm excited to rewatch it now and uh, <laughs> with all this discussion in mind. Yeah, but I am. I'm also curious about the, the use of flashbacks because we we see this in in Pulp Fiction as well. But like it, particularly with that one kind of messing with the the narrative um, structure. But what I loved about about it in here, and I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on it, was the way that the flashbacks are sort of. It almost feels like it's not it's not out of time. It's sort of like happening at the same time. Like he'll just cut hmm. to him and it is a flashback, but it's sort of interjecting into the story in such a way that it doesn't feel like we're going back and forth in time. It just feels like this is part of the story. I don't I don't I don't know if even that makes sense or not, but it just there's a way that the way of memory and the way that time operates in this is just uh, more than just like all of a sudden we're in the past, we're in the present, we're in the past and the present. Cause they, they sort of interject with each other, particularly with uh, Tim, Tim Roth telling the story of uh, mm. the made up story about being in the bathroom and running into the cops and that, that sort of heist where he's like play acting it at various times. We're cutting back between those various times and also cutting back to the action that's happening right now. And it's just in such an interesting structural way that it feels like it's all happening in a linear fashion, even though it's not linear. I don't even know if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a, there's like a propulsion to the whole thing mm -hmm. and uh yeah i mean i remember you know my initial viewing of it i didn't really know what was going on you know it was just this kind of this just downhill sprint to you know uh the finish line and it still plays for that like that for me i mean i guess you know when i kind of pull it apart i mean i i understand all the flashbacks but they're done in a way that you know, isn't cliche and isn't taboo. I mean, you know, a lot of times, you know, if you're using flashbacks in a movie, it's usually a sign of weakness or that you're trying mm -hmm. to fix something. But obviously, mm -hmm. you know, his whole, uh, you know, at least with the first two movies, it's it's completely flips that on its head. 
So. Well, and they feel like they don't feel like I feel like in like flashbacks, they can feel like can take you out of the moment, out of the plot, out of kind of like you said propulsion forward, Terry. But again, these these flashbacks feel like they're necessary to move everything forward. Like, yeah, obviously, like flashbacks are supposed to move narrative forward, like in theory. But when we do, like, especially in the technique in movies, it feels like, oh, shit, you've taken us out of the action. But this just feels like you need it to move that action forward in a really interesting way that keeps everything together. And without it, it wouldn't have that same emotional weight. It wouldn't feel. So, yeah, Terry, basically what I'm saying is I agree with you. Um, I love I like I like the way he does that. (laughs) And it reminds me of when I watched Pulp Fiction for the first time when I was way too young and was just like. (laughs) who is happening where like I did it was before I understood the idea of nonlinear storytelling well I think that this sort of like is a uh, sort of like a, a testing board for what he does in Pulp Fiction but I think this one oh, yeah. makes a lot more narrative sense in terms of what you're talking about Mary Beth where it's like yeah what's happening when there, there's a the connection here where it's like it's all one sequence and some of it is told out of order, but it is it sort of plays into each other. And what I do love about it, there's that the line when Tim Roth is coming up with the story and his his cop friend that, that is giving him this the big script says the story is about you and how you perceive the events went down. And that is sort of like almost the thesis to this movie, because everyone comes to the table with their own events of the story. And there's arguments about, no, this is what happened. No, this is what happened. And there's even sort of like. What I do like is there's the, the flashback with Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi's character, where he says, you know, I, I shot my way out there. And we he says that. And then we we cut to him and he's running. And it's like at first you think that he's he's like sort of misrepresenting the truth because it looks like he is just like a scared coward just running out there with his bag of jewels. But then it turns into a shootout. But what is being shown is is a little bit different than what he is saying is happening. It's a little bit more in-depth vice. I shot my way out. Whereas we see, no, you didn't just shoot your way out. You went through here. You pulled a girl out, a woman out of her car, took it, started shooting. Like there's there's more to the story than what is being told. And I think that is what the flashbacks do incredibly well in this movie. More so than, as you said, John, it's usually a narrative crutch. But more so than most movies that use flashbacks, this is sort of playing with your experiences, how you are representing the movie or how you're representing the events that happened vice everyone else. And I just, I find it, I don't know, it just really tickled my my funny bone i loved it (laughs) (laughs) sometimes things come out of my mouth and i don't even know where they came from that's one of them (laughs) Uh, um anyway so do we have anything we want to hit with the rest of our dogs before we start wrapping up and giving our ratings out of five well i i am curious john because it sounded as if you had seen like up until this, this was a movie unlike anything that you had seen at that point. Had you ever seen stories that played with time or anything like that in in a way? No, I mean not besides like uh like the never ending story or something uh, like that. You know, like I mean mm-hmm. very basic uh you know very basic storytelling. So I mean I, this left me utterly just fucking dumbfounded. Um and like I said, I mean I felt like I had been assaulted. You know, um, just in my understanding of of movies, acting, like I like I felt like I was watching something that really happened and then I shouldn't have been. I was, you know, leaning forward the whole time, leaning in. So, um, yeah, it was my first exposure to that for sure. Because I, I can't imagine like we've had some people that have come on the the show that have had wild ass choices that I just I can't imagine seeing as a kid. And this is one of them, not necessarily because it it is there is moments of of, of violence in it, but also it's just it's a very. I don't know, adult 
story, an adult way of telling a story that I can't imagine being a, you said seven years old, six or seven when you saw it. I can't imagine being that young and, and experiencing this, this movie. I was exposed to a lot of weird shit when I was a kid. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I'd seen, by this point, I'd seen a ton of porn that I shouldn't have seen. Oh. And, uh. and, you know, so uh, my brain was, uh, was, was primed for just about anything weird, you know? Um, but you know, again, like when it's a VHS tape and you're watching it on a TV, uh, I don't know. It just it, when somebody tells you it's a movie and it plays like it's something you've never seen, it's just it's different than seeing, a, you know, a porno magazine or, a, you know, the Pam and Tommy Lee tape or something, you know, so. <laughs> Did this change how um, the kind of content that you seeked out afterwards or did you go back to watching you know, stuff that might have been made for kids. <laughs> no, I mean, I remember not long after that, I saw El Topo. Uh, okay. mm. And that fucking mm-hmm. really kind of blew my mind. Um, you know, the guy, cloak guy riding around the desert with a bait, like a naked baby, you know. Um, and then uh, Santa Sangre was <laughs> oh. another one I worked fully mountain. Mm. I mean, uh, holy oh, wow. kid. Uh, you know, a lot of those kind of those those i my my brain as you could probably tell with candyland was compromised from that you know a very young age so uh, <laughs> watching larry so, clark when yeah. you're in your teenager good lord <laughs> yeah yeah i was i was bully came out and i was less than a teenager i was probably nine or so but uh, i've never seen any of his movies there are a lot they're great um, I'm, I'm i'm upset i didn't pick bully man bully is is like i mean a lot of people go to kids because it was kind of the you know, controversial movie of the mm-hmm. time, with the AIDS, yeah. uh, you know, you know, epidemic going on, but Bowley is like, it is, it is really, it's just got such a great cast of actors too. It's, uh, you know, Brad Renfro who passed away, um, mm-hmm. um, uh, Bijou Phillips, uh, Michael Pitt. Um, oh, wow. it's, a, it's a cool, it's a cool cast. And it's a really fucking gnarly story. If you like horror, that's a fucking horror movie, man. You know? So, uh, I highly recommend it. Larry's like, that was kind of, that's his best movie to me. After that, it kind of got a little dodgy, but uh, I'm a big fan of that film. So, Oh, yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap this up and give Reservoir Dogs our rating out of five. Uh, Terry, you're up first. Uh, How many severed ears out of five do you give Reservoir Dogs? Stuck in the middle with you. Um, (laughs) You know, I wasn't sure what what to think when I was going to start this movie, because, again, I had not seen it. Uh, it's probably been at least 20 years since I've seen this this movie. Which, where does the time go? But anyway, um, <laughs> I'm like, I'm just realizing, like, shit, that was so long ago. Um, and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to get watching this again for the for the first time since then. But it really it really blew me away for reasons that I was not expecting to. I I loved the way that the story was unfolding. I loved the, the kind of character interactions, particularly with Mr. White and Mr. Orange. I loved, I don't know. There's, it was, it was cool to see these, these actors sort of that I would fall in love with over the course of the time since then, particularly like Steve Buscemi, who I'm always bringing things to 30 Rock, and I want you to, to be happy that I did not mention my entry point. Well, not my entry point. But my, whenever I think of William Baldwin, I think of uh, 30 Rock because he plays a character in one episode of that. And there's like I 
30 rocks is my jumping off point but i'm i'm watching this and i'm watching steve and i'm watching all these these character actors and i just i don't know it made me like really happy um i have some problems with tarantino's uh continued use of racial language but um i think this movie is a masterpiece it might actually be my favorite of tarantino's on this on this rewatch i think i think it's a five severed ears that's a lot of cutting to do but i think that's how many it is for me what about you mary beth honestly uh very much the same i think this is my my favorite tarantino movie now um it's always been hard to kind of pick because i love inglorious bastards and i love pulp fiction but i think in rewatching this one and just seeing how tarantino is laying out everything that is to come for him so well and so like he's so assured even mm. with his debut it's incredibly impressive i think what he's doing here is so much more complicated than i ever thought and i think i love tarantino like this but this kind of movie this kind of just it's it's something special and i'm so glad i got a chance to rewatch it so thanks john um but then you have the final word john how many severed ears out of five do you get press of war dogs five i mean uh the cultural impact of the movie alone i think is a five and then yeah i think it it blows my mind, like I said, that uh, right out of the gate, he had that much command of what he was trying to do and, you know, delivered on it. So five. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining us to talk about Reservoir Dogs. Uh, I know you said you don't have social media, so I won't ask if people can find you. But um, what do you have that you can talk about or plug? The floor is the floor is all yours. Well, Candyland comes out January 6th. Uh, I'm interested to hear how many severed ears that gets from everybody. Hell yeah. Uh, at the same time, I don't care. It's a great movie and we love it. And uh it's a lot of fun. And then um February third, uh we have a, a, a grindhouse film coming out called Little Dixie. Uh that's a lot of fun. Um and then there's another film uh called One Day's Line that's gonna come out later in the year that we made. And uh getting ready to shoot another movie in the spring, and that's it, man. Just uh busy. Hell yeah. busy. So amazing. Yeah. Well, listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Reservoir Dogs? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. And if you want to help support us more, we have a Patreon. Uh, Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. 
Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.